Well, good evening. Good to see you. Are you ready for some revelation tonight? All right, that's good. Good to see all of you. Welcome to our study, our Wednesday night uh, study going through the book of Revelation. I want to say thank you to all of you who prayed for Camden and me the uh, preaching the last two days. And so thank you so much. It went well. Had a great time with the pastors there from Illinois and Missouri both. And Really enjoyed that time. So thank you for your prayers and support for us. We knew we're back home. Many of you texted us and emailed us. And even if you didn't, I knew you were doing it. And so I told Camden right before we went up there, I said, you know what? It's great to have a church like First Baptist Garland that we know is praying for us today. And I knew that you were. So it really did mean a lot to us. And we appreciate that. Let's pray together. We'll get started in Revelation chapter 4. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the power that's in it. Thank you, dear Lord, that you have given to us your inerrant, infallible word. God, we know exactly what you're saying and what you're speaking to us because you've, you've given it to us. So, Lord, tonight as we open up Revelation chapter 4, I pray that you would speak to our hearts through the Holy Spirit what you want us to know. Help us, Father, in knowing it. Uh, be better believers, better Christians, better followers of you. And Lord, thank you for what's taking place in heaven right now. We can't even see, but we get a glimpse tonight because of the vision you showed John. So thank you for giving us this information tonight. And God, would you guide our thoughts as we, as we read through it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Welcome to those of you joining us online. We always have a large online audience, 700, 750, or even more of you join us on, on Wednesday nights for our Bible studies, and we're thankful for that. So wherever you are, uh, and however you may be joining us, we welcome you also. Revelation chapter 4, uh, the ESV version, with your Bible or device, and uh, if you'll turn there, we'll get started. We had to miss last Wednesday night, all activities are, are on uh, spring break week, or dismissed here so it's good to pick back up again even though we had to last miss last Wednesday night it came at a good breaking point because chapter 3 of Revelation kind of ends a section and chapter 4 begins another one tonight really 4 through 22 the rest of the uh, the book is all one section and so we'll talk about that more in just a moment First of all, letter A on your outline tonight, let's recap a little bit. We've had to miss, and so I want us to recap, kind of see where we are, and, and uh, just take a, an overview of what we've learned through the first three chapters of Revelation so far. The word revelation means apocalypse or unveiling. That's exactly right. Man, y'all are doing really well. You're going to get A's tonight. I can feel it. Revelation, it means to unveil something that's previously been hidden is now made known. And in fact, it was Martin Luther who said, I don't like the book of Revelation. I don't agree with it. I don't even consider it a book of the Bible, Martin Luther said, because it means, Revelation means to unveil, and it hasn't unveiled anything. We're still confused. Well, we, there are some things unveiled, and they'll become even more clear as time goes on. So I don't agree with Martin Luther there. Uh, it means an unveiling, something hidden that is now made clear or unveiled to us. Remember who was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. It was not written to us. Keep that in mind. A lot of people interpret Revelation like it was written to America in 2022. It wasn't written to us. It was written to them in 90 AD. But it applies to us. But remember that. So you always have to read Revelation in light of who it was written to first. What did it mean when they picked it up for the first time and read it? What did it mean to them? 
And then when you figure that out and, and kind of get a, a feel for that, you can apply it to what it means to us. So remember to whom it was written. Now, in the churches in Revelation, the, the first, uh, the, the, at the verse seven, uh, first three chapters written in the seven churches, remember now what was going on in those churches. Three problems. You remember what they were? Persecution was one, and that image of persecution was the beast, the Roman government. So anytime you see the beast or the great beast referring to the Roman government, the Roman Empire, it was persecuting believers. What was the second problem? False teaching. So whenever you see false prophet, anything mentioned about the false prophet, that was representative of the false teachings in the church. And then the third problem, cultural influence, which we see all of these problems in, 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 in not just the world today, but in America today, cultural influence outside the church coming into the church. And that is uh, the image of the prostitute. Anytime you see the prostitute or the great prostitute, that's a reference to the cultural influence coming in to uh, the churches of Asia Minor. Now, in Revelation, you remember, as we're recapping, we saw in week one, there are more than 60 visions in this book. And they're not in chronological order. That's what's confusing about it. There'll be a vision, then another vision, then another vision. And then there's a fourth vision that refers back to the first vision. And so it's, it's all mixed together and intertwined, more than 60 different visions. And also, there are more than 350 references to the Old Testament in just the book of Revelation. So it's a book that very much is predicated upon the fact that you know the Old Testament. And so a lot of Old Testament references are in it. Now, the original readers of the book of Revelation, they would have known apocalyptic literature pretty well. We don't know it well. We rarely read it, except unless it's in the Bible. But they were, it was very common in that day to have apocalyptic literature, so they understood it much better than do we. A lot of symbols through Revelation, but just because it uses symbols does not mean everything's symbolic. That's important. Just because symbols are used does not mean everything is symbolic. Remember, John wrote it. Where was he? Island of Patmos, 90 AD. Absolutely. There was persecution going on of the worst, most intense kind of believers in 90 AD by the Roman Emperor Domitian. Exactly right. So, uh, you're doing well. So, Domitian was the emperor during this time. These are all things we need to recap in order to go forward and understand as we go. Remember some of the guidelines I gave you. Do not spiritualize the book. If it refers to a lion, that doesn't mean Great Britain. Some people say, oh, that's Great Britain. No, it's a lion. Uh, if it says the bear, that's not Russia. If it says an eagle, it's not the United States. Don't symbolize, I mean, don't, don't uh, 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 symbolize or make everything symbolic that's in there. Don't spiritualize it. Also, we talked about exegeting, not eisegeting. And you remember the difference. Exegete is where you draw out what's there. Eisegete is where you read into it. We're going to talk about that in one of the verses tonight where people eisegete much more than they exegete. I'll talk about that when we get to chapter 4 here in just a moment. So remember, draw out what's in there. Don't read into it what you think's in there or what you hope's in there or what your theological interpretation believes. Let the Bible be your th theological interpretation, not a book a man wrote. So let the Bible be it. 
Don't get caught up in the symbols. We talked about that. Don't get, if you get caught up in the sevens or the, the uh, 666 or the 144,000 or the Antichrist or the millennium and how it's interpreted or the rapture or the wild beast or is COVID in here? Is the Ukraine in here? If you get caught up in all of that, you miss Jesus. So don't read Revelation and miss Jesus. That's the key point of the entire book. Now, sometimes as we read passages, it might mean the Ukraine or maybe a reference to something going on now or to COVID, or we'll look at some of those as we go along. Now, another thing we talked about is to accept the most literal interpretation of a passage unless it is blatantly obvious that it's symbolic, okay? So if you're reading a passage and you're going, well, I wonder is this symbolic or not? If it makes sense being literal, take it literally. So the first interpretation of any passage is not metaphorical or not symbolic, but it needs to be uh, literal. Seven churches, you remember, they were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those in chapters 2 and 3 were the seven churches that John wrote letters to. He was commanded to by the Lord, by Jesus to write letters to. Now, why these seven churches? Well, we've talked about those theories. One is because that's where the post offices were. Very, may, that, well, maybe the, the case. That's where the postal districts were, those seven uh, postal districts. Some people say these seven churches represent the known world at the time. Others say types of churches uh, of all ages. And some even say that it's seven different time periods of church history. Well, we don't know that. We're not told that in Scripture, so we don't know that for sure either. But every letter of all seven had the same pattern. We remember you talked about that. All seven, same pattern. Pattern was, as he wrote the letter of the church, always immediately Jesus said, I know what's going on in your church. I'm watching. He told every church that, which ought to be good advice for us as well. He knows what's going on here. I'm watching, I know what's going on in your church. And then after that, he would give them a commendation, something they're doing good. And then he would, uh, that was all except Sardis and Laodicea, they had no commendations. And then he, would, then he would give them a rebuke, something that they were not doing well. Well, all the churches except Smyrna and Philadelphia, he didn't rebuke them at all. And then he would exhort them, I encourage you to do this, to be better. And then he would give them a promise, every single church. He would do a commendation, a rebuke, an exhortation, and then a promise. So that's kind of a recap where we are at this point, everything that we've studied and looked at the first uh, four sessions uh, looking at uh, chapters 1 through 3. Now let's begin chapters 4 through 22. The last uh, 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 chapters of the book, 4 through 22, are all really about the same thing, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. We need to cover something else first before we get to chapter 4. Look at letter B on your outline, methods of interpretation. I was going to cover this in session 1, the opening night. Didn't really have time to go into it. And I thought, well, it fits better before chapter 4 anyway. So let's wait till chapter 4 and let's talk about this. There are several ways people interpret the entire book of Revelation. So it's important to talk about this because most likely every preacher you hear interprets it one of several ways, four or five ways. 
Every book you read is going to be interpreted either one of four or five ways. And so I want to look at the main ways people interpret the book of Revelation. First one is called the historical method. That is the historical interpretation of Revelation. What does that mean? That means there are some people that read this book and they interpret it with the details of uh, the events of the totality of history playing out, not just John's day. So there are some people that say, well, Revelation unfolds over the course of history, not just when John wrote it, 90 AD, but if you read it, it's an unfolding of all of history from the first century to the return of Christ. That's why it's called historical. It's an overview of history. And you see all of these things in here unfolding throughout history. And the events of Revelation then are recorded throughout the course of human history. And one day, Revelation chapter 22 will be culminated with Jesus' return. There are some that believe in a one-stage return, some that believe in a two-stage return. Those that believe in a one-stage return feel like that we're just going along through history and all of a sudden Jesus comes back. It's called the return of Christ. Two-stage return means some people believe that there is a rapture first, seven-year tribulation time, and then another coming, a second coming of Christ, two-stage coming of Jesus. So it culminates then with Revelation 22. The Antichrist would end up being any person from human history. So that's how the historical method is interpreted. Here's the second method. It's called preterist. The preterist method. And the word preterist is an old Latin word that means past or what's in the past. The word praetor in Latin means past. So this interpretation, as they read Revelation, they believe that it deals with events that have already happened. It happened in John's day. It happened as he was writing in 90 AD. So Revelation 22 culminated in John's day. And so as we're reading Revelation, we're reading history. We're not reading what's going to happen in the future. We're actually reading history. There are a lot of pastors Southern Baptist churches believe the preterist interpretation. And I don't. Uh, they, they do. They preach the preterist, and that is Revelation is a history book. It's what happened. It's all already happened. The Antichrist is the Roman government. It was the Roman Empire. It was the emperor worship. That was the Antichrist. And everything is the struggle between the church and the Roman Empire. And once the Roman Empire was gone, that was like Revelation 22, it had ended. And so the preterist view is that it has all happened in the past. So Revelation is nothing but a history book like 1 Kings or 2 Kings. It's just history. It's not something in the future. A lot of preachers believe that. Third method of interpretation is called futurist. And this is the book is almost entirely Future events, things that will happen in the future. The Antichrist will come from someone who is not here yet. He is someone to come in the future. So everything we're reading in Revelation is not in the past. Almost all of it is futuristic. And there are many pastors that believe that, that what we're reading is future history, 
not past history. The next interpretation is called, letter D on your outline, the idealist, the idealist uh, interpretation. This is also called the allegorical method of interpretation. And people that believe this believe that revelation is nothing but an allegory. It's not real. It's just an allegory of where good triumphs over evil. You know the book uh, Pilgrim's Progress that you read in school by John Bunyan years ago? That's an allegory. A man by the name of Christian who symbolizes every one of us is on his way to the celestial city in, the, in Pilgrim's Progress, and that's, that's a metaphor for heaven. His wife's name is not Christian, but Christiana, the female version of Christian. And their young neighbor who lived next door is taking the journey with them to the celestial city, and the neighbor's name is Mercy. And so Mercy is going with them as they're on the journey. So a lot of symbolism that you read into it, metaphors, allegory, really didn't happen. It's just an allegory of the Christian life. So the idealist interpretation is revelation is not really real. It's not going to happen. There's not a real antichrist out there. That's just the personification of evil in the world. And, and there's really not, you know, all of these things going to happen. It, it, it's not really going to happen. It's just an allegory. And so read it like that. Like Pilgrim's Progress. Well, there aren't many, there aren't too many that believe that interpretation anymore. Used to be quite a few of them. More liberal theologians today uh, buy into the idealist uh, interpretation of Revelation. But you'll still see from time to time, you'll still read books that talk about this. But I wanted to mention these to you because you may run across all of these. There's a fifth one I want to mention, but um, you probably haven't heard of it, but it's out there. And it's called the Jewish interpretation of Revelation. This is how Jews interpret Revelation. And they interpret it differently. Primarily comes from a book uh, by E.W. Bullinger called The, the Apocalypse and the, and the Day of the Lord. But basically the Jewish interpretation is that none of the book of Revelation has been fulfilled yet. It's all futuristic. Even the seven churches of Asia Minor haven't existed yet. They are to come. They haven't existed yet. Asia Minor hasn't existed yet. It will one day. And so, it, Revelation is a book, the Jews believe, of the Jewish people to come. It's what's going to happen to the Jewish people in the days to come. Well, not many people buy this and believe this and interpret Revelation. The Jews do, obviously. Not many Christians use this interpretation to interpret Revelation anymore. So, I, I wanted to mention all of those because it is important how you interpret Revelation. And you say, well, how do you feel, Pastor? Well, there's another theory, and that's several of these combined, I think, is the accurate view. And that's where I would fall, and that's called the eclectic view. And that is the view where it's not any one of these, but maybe a couple of these. For example, it's definitely more than allegory. I don't buy that one at all. Preterist, it all happened in the past, has no application for today. It's got to have application for today for us. God would have included it in his holy word if it didn't. So it's got to be more than preterist. I probably fall along between historical and futuristic. Some of the events in here happened in the past. 
Some of these have not happened yet. They're going to happen in the future. I would probably fall somewhere between historical and futuristic. That's just my own personal opinion. You can fall where you want. <clears throat> Excuse me, but I didn't mean that literally don't fall where you want. But I mean, as far as interpretation goes. Now, I wanted to mention these because it does matter, books you read, preachers you hear, teachers of Revelation, does matter greatly which view they're coming from. For example, you may hear a teacher preach on Revelation. You go, wow. They said some things I never heard before. Well, they're coming from a different interpretation. So I wanted you to have that background as we go forward into the interpretation of the rest of the book. Having said that, now let's look at chapter 4. 11 verses tonight, and we're going to look at the throne in heaven. Let me give you a brief overview of chapters 4 and 5. We now come to this, 44 through uh, 22, the end of the book, end of Revelation, and I need to tell you that they are not in chronological order. So don't think chapter 4 happens, and chapter 5 happens, and chapter 6 happens, and then 7, then 8, then 9, then 10. They're not in chronological order. Chapter 17 could happen before chapter 10. That's why it gets confusing. They're not in chronological order. So that's the first thing you need to realize to understand the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, Chapters 4 and 5 are visions of heaven. Not all of heaven, but one particular spot in heaven. The throne room. The throne room where God sits. So we're seeing not all of heaven. Whenever I was a boy, I, I thought, read Revelation 4 and 5. That's all of heaven. No, it's one room. In my Father's house are many rooms. It's one room. It's the throne room. It's the most important room. It's where God is. It's the throne room. So it's a vision of the throne room of heaven. And these two chapters, 4 and 5, next Wednesday night, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll study chapter 5. 4 and 5 together are the starting point for what begins in chapter 6. From chapter 6 on are judgments poured out upon earth. That's where it's starting to get very interesting as to what's going on today. Starting with chapter 6 onward. Judgments God pours out upon the earth. So he prefaces the judgment of earth with two chapters of heaven. What's going on? And we're, and we're looking at chapter, those chapters because really they, they form the background for the rest of the, the book. In chapter 4, the father hands over a scroll with seven seals and he gives it to Jesus the son. Chapter 5, the son takes the scroll and he opens the seven seals and beginning with each one of the seven seals a different judgment is poured out upon the earth and he's the only one worthy to open the scroll and we're going to see that in chapter 5 next week so tonight the father hands the scroll to the son and next week the son takes the scroll and begins one by one to open the seals that wrap up the scroll a lot of theologians say that chapters 4 and 5, this vision of the throne of heaven, is the fulcrum for the rest of the book. Those of you who know what a, fulc you know what a fulcrum is, it's the resting point where a lever sits that moves the whole body. 
So a lot of people say verses 4 and 5, that's the, that's the resting point for the rest of the book where all these judgments come and all the bowls come and all of the fiery images come. All come because chapters 4 and 5, that is the fulcrum of it all. That's what a lot of theologians say, and I don't think they're wrong in saying that. Chapters 4 and 5 are dominated by one theme, praise. Naturally, if you look into heaven tonight, you're going to see praise. Praise and adoration and worship of the one who's worthy of all of it. So those two chapters have a theme of praise and adoration. Beasley Murray, theologian, said, no part of Scripture is more calculated to evoke worship than these two chapters of Revelation, chapter 4 and chapter 5. So you can see where these two chapters would inspire believers who are going through hard times. Imagine, put yourself, you're in the first century, you're, you're being persecuted by Domitian who hates you, who hates Christianity. He's killing a lot of our church members. He's beheading some. You see one on Sunday, they're beheaded before the next Sunday. People are sitting next to, next to you at, at church. You would imagine how seeing two chapters of visions of God saying, one day I make everything right and good triumphs over evil. You can imagine how that would encourage your heart. So, that's why 4 and 5 uh, is important. It's the, it's the fulcrum of everything else that happens. Now, one other word before we get there. There are some theologians that say, between chapter 3 and chapter 4, from where we ended last week to where we begin tonight, the rapture happens. Jesus comes back. But it's not the second coming yet. Remember the rapture, seven-year tribulation, then Jesus returns, second coming. So there are many that say chapter 3 and then the rapture. And so chapter 4 begins after the rapture, but before the second coming. So it's some people. So I'm not saying that, that, that everybody believes that, but I'm just saying it's what some say. So with that in mind, uh, you say, well, why would they believe that? Well, the main reason they believe it is because the first three chapters of Revelation, the word church is mentioned 20 times. From chapter 4, the rest of the book, it's mentioned zero. So, they say, church must be gone. Rapture must have happened. Church is gone. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. So, that is the man's interpretation Placed upon Scripture, remember, exegete, don't eisegete. So it could be, but it can't say definitely. Rapture happens here, church is gone, chapter 4 opens. We don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us that. But there are many that will say church is gone starting in chapter 4. So let's open the chapter. Chapter 4, verse, all verse, 11 verses. As we open chapter 4, here is the scene. Huge room, massive. It's the throne room. And the scene is a courtroom setting. You're in court, massive courtroom. It's called the great throne room of heaven. 
And right in the middle of it is the judge's seat. And sitting on the throne is God. Just as a side note, that's exactly what the Old Testament temple looked like. Does heaven look like the Old Testament temple? Well, there are some that say it does. And there are some that say that's why God had it patterned after the temple. Or the temple patterned the way it did. It's very meticulous. Remember about the temple? Very meticulous. So some people say that's because it looked like the throne room of heaven. So you see a courtroom setting and a divine council session is, a divine council is in session. And here's what happens. Verse, verse 1. John says, after this, after the letters to the seven churches, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So it's heaven, there's a door open. Like, okay, a door, a door to heaven's open. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me, who is that? It's Jesus. Remember, that's the voice that spoke to him to begin the book. The voice was like a trumpet. What did Jesus sound like? A trumpet's call, loud, clear, and ringing forth. By the way, in the Old Testament, when Israel would go into battle, blow the trumpet, battle starting. Chapter 4, the battle starts. And the voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this, who's he telling to come up there? John. Why is that important? Because there are a lot of people that will tell you, oh, oh, that's the rapture. He's telling the church to come up there. He doesn't say that. That is you taking your theological predisposition and putting it upon Scripture. Don't do that. That's eisegesis. Take out what's there and draw it out. He told John to come up there. Not a church, not the rapture. He told John to come. Otherwise, he'd said, the called out ones, the ecclesia, come up here. He didn't say that. He told John to. Come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. Verse 2. John said at once, I was in the Spirit. So there seemed to be a second level he went to, doesn't there? Remember, when Revelation started, he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now he says, I'm in another Spirit. So it's like he even transported John to another dimension that's even closer to the throne. And I was in the Spirit, and behold, I looked, and a throne stood in heaven. And with one seated on the throne. A couple of thoughts. First thought is, notice, whenever John goes into heaven, the first thing he sees, his eyes are riveted to a throne. That's how we're created. Every one of us look to have a throne, something that is controlling our lives. Every one of us. If you dethrone God, that's called humanism. You put human on the throne. So humans are most important. 
Or you could put anything else on the throne. But you must have, you, we're meant to worship something. They find, they find remote tribes in the deepest part of Africa. They did in the past, I know. Deep, in the deepest part of Africa where God had never even been heard of or mentioned. And they have fashioned something to worship. Why? Who told them to worship something? Something in here did. You need to worship. Your eyes immediately go to a throne. Here's a second thought I had. Notice he didn't say it was God on the throne. He said one seated on the throne. Why didn't he say, and I saw God sitting there. And he didn't give us any physical attributes of God that he saw. Why not? He's a spirit. Remember? God said, I'm spirit. He that worships must have been spirit in the truth. And so he couldn't give us a physical description but he knew it was God. When we get there, we're going to know it's God. And our eyes are immediately, of all the beauties of heaven, our eyes immediately are going to go first to the throne. And one that sat there. Verse 3, And he who was seated on the throne he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Now, if you look at jasper and carnelian, uh, jasper, it's not what like we know it today. Uh, it's more like diamonds. Uh, we know jasper in a different way because the word jasper, there's also re- used in Revelation 21.11, same word, it's re- re- translated diamond. So it's something that's clear and, and, and precious. But he also mentioned another stone, and that was sardis or, or carnelian. Now, why would God be like those two stones? Why, why would he look and immediately think of, of those two stones? Well, the diamond, the clarity, the purity, the sardis was fiery red. It came from sardis, from carnelian, came from sardis. And it was fiery red. And so it appears to be symbols of his holiness and his judgment. Because for the next chapters that are coming up, we're going to see two things about God. He is holy, and he's a God of justice. And we're going to see both of these played out. And it's not an accident that both of these stones are the ones that are mentioned. And he sat there, had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. A couple of thoughts. Rainbows aren't emerald, they're multicolored. Right? What would a rainbow of emerald look like? How do you know it's a rainbow if it's all emerald? Rainbows are all different colors. Why would it all be green or emerald? Well, it's probably a reference not to the colors of a rainbow. Of course, you remember rainbow was the promise God gave to Noah after the flood. Uh, the promise that he made. It, it most likely is, is referring to the rainbow that is surrounding the, the, the shape, not the color. So, so you, you're looking at God into all of his vast holiness, but circling the throne is a rainbow, a promise of God that he even limits all of his glory. He even limits himself to his promises. And you see that beautifully pictured here. A rainbow. The promise that he is even tied himself to, to us. Verse 4, 
And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So now John's eyes go from the throne in heaven to what's around the throne. He looks around the throne now and he sees 24 smaller thrones. And each one of them had somebody sitting on those thrones. They weren't as important as God, obviously, but they were pretty important. They seemed to be in some type of judicial position. So, who are these 24 elders sitting on the 24 thrones? Well, the word elder that's used here is the word for elder all the way through the Bible. It's presbuo. We get the word presbyterian from it because it's an elder form of church government. But presbio just simply meant somebody who was mature or a representative. So they appear to be representatives of God who are mature. But who are they? Men or angels? Well, theologians are split 50-50 on that. About half of the Bible scholars say, I think they're men. Men who have died and, and now have exalted places in heaven. And, and about half the theologians say, no, they, I, I don't think they're humans at all. I think they're angelic beings. I think they're angels. Well, if they're angels, every description of them fits a description of angel in the Bible. But never is the word elder, presbuo, applied to an angel in Scripture. So if it's a human, who is it? Well, some people say it was 24 elders from Israel, the Israelites represented. Others say, no, it's the church. It's church leaders from the past. And others say, well, it's half and half, 12 from Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and then 12 church leaders that followed. And so you, you have both. We don't really know. Those are the theories. What is interesting to me is this. If you go back to the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 23 and 24, you find 24 priests who were gathered around to administer judgments, but their job was to worship and serve God. 24 priests seated around in the temple area. It sure sounds like this, doesn't it? So maybe it was a picture of what the temple, of course, being a picture of the throne room. Maybe it was the 24 priestly orders represented from the Old Testament. Another possibility. We don't know. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. You remember whenever Moses went up on top of Mount Sinai to get the law? What encountered him? When he met God, lightning, thunder. So now you see God in heaven, lightning, thunder, both. Whenever we're in an extreme lightning and thunderstorm, I heard we had one. I wasn't here whenever the other night when one hit. I heard we had one. It's frightening, isn't it? I mean, when you're in a bad one, it's frightening. And that's what John noticed. Ah, the thunder and the lightning and and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which the seven spirits of God. Torches of fire. Israelites, they would light a torch of fire when they got ready for battle, when they were ready to go out and execute judgment on a nation. 
that God had told them to execute judgment on the, they, they lit the torch and they got ready to go forth. And could it be that now judgment's about to come forth on the nation starting in chapter 6? And so he's lighting the torch because the armies are about to go forth and bring the judgment. Very well could be. And he's using the angels to carry the torches. Could the angels be, parting, be, be part of fighting the battles of the end times? Maybe so. Verse 6. And before the throne there was in it a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The eyes are to show that he's always watching, never misses anything. God is, God is letting them know to the first century church, I'm not missing anything that's happening of your persecution that's going on. Take that to our day. God is not missing a thing going on worldwide. You look over in Ukraine, you look at other places in China, you're going, God, do you even see what's going on? Oh, yes. Everyone has eyes that go every direction in heaven. Everything is seen. Four living creatures full of eyes, front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion. The second like an ox. The third living creature was the, had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like the eagle in flight. Well now, what are these four? Four living creatures seem to be angelic beings. What are they? Well, they seem to be representative and so you see that here, four living creatures. The first was like, and say it was, it was like a lion. That'd be the strength, an ox for servanthood, a man's intelligence, and the eagles for their swiftness. And you see this later on. It's not just my interpretation. You see this interpreted later on. So these four are the head of other species. You have wild beasts. Domesticated, you know, lions, domesticated animals, oxes, human beings, creatures that walk, flying creatures, eagles. So you have all four species representative, and each one of these seems to be the head of their species. Lions are the wild beasts, the ox strength and the, and the servitude of the domesticated beast, and then the humans for the walking creatures, and then the eagles for the flying creatures. The best of each. That which is the noblest and the strongest and the wisest and the swiftest. That seems to be the interpretation. Now, through the years, very quickly, I'll tell you another couple of other interpretations that just some say, oh, it's the four Gospels. Where do you get that from? It's eisegesis. It's really getting to a passage. Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the attributes of God. We're not told that. It's reading into Scripture. Some said, it's the four signs of the zodiac. What? I've heard that interpretation. Where do you get that from? You're reading into Scripture. Take out what it says. Don't read into it. Go to verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Folks, you see into heaven, day and night, non-stop. Worthy, worthy, worthy are you. Wow. Powerful. It's going to be resounding. And we get to join the chorus. Verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne and who lives forever and ever, 
The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. Now, before we get to the last verse, I want to just a note about them casting their crowns before the throne. I've always heard, whenever we get to heaven, God's going to give us a crown, but we're going to, the Bible says we're going to take that crown and we're going to lay it at the feet of Jesus. The Bible never says that. Now, we might. We're never told that. It says the 24 elders did. It never said we all will. Now, we, like I said, we might. This is what you may want to do with your crown. Because we are given crowns, and the Bible talks about that. Not for the one who finishes first, but for the one that's faithful. You receive the crown of life. Back in biblical days, whenever an athlete would win, whenever he won a contest, he would receive a wreath. It's called a Stephanos or a Stephanie. The word Stephanie today means crown. They would receive a Stephanie if a woman did, a Stephanos if a, if a man did. And it would be a wreath, and when they would go back home from the imperial games, like our Olympics, they would take the wreath that they had, and many of them, most of them, when they got back home, whatever deity they worshipped, they would place it before the deity, where an image usually, in homage. That's the picture that you and I, 24 elders, that the crown is cast before. So, I'm not saying we won't. In fact, we very well may. Just not say, it just doesn't sound in the Bible we will. But we very well may want to, in honor of our deity, the only deity, the only true and living God, place our crowns to show our complete allegiance is not to an idol, but to him. And then notice what they say, and then we'll close. Verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, I know those are the words that reverberate through the throne room of heaven as the 24 elders lay their crowns at the feet of Christ and they say, worthy are you, worthy are you, Lord. I know that's what's being said. But here's something else interesting. Whenever John wrote in 90 AD and Domitian was persecuting all the believers because they would not worship the emperor, the words of worship to the emperor in those days were, Worthy art thou, O emperor, to receive glory and honor and power, for you are Lord God. That's what you recited to the emperor. Imagine. Imagine what it would mean to a body of believers who would refuse to say that, that they see a glimpse of heaven and they hear Worthy, worthy are you, Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power to the true God, not the emperor. Imagine what it must have been to hear that. So the scene is set. This chapter prepares us now for the judgments that will come in chapter 6. We see in chapter 4 a God who is holy and just and righteous, and omnipotent, and eternal, and sovereign, sitting on his throne. And we'll pick up next Wednesday night, he turns from his throne to hand a scroll to Jesus. And Jesus opens it.
Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together. Lord, I just thank you for your word, what it means. And Lord, it's just all we can do to tip, just touch the tip of the iceberg. That's all that's there. So much is in your word. God, help us in the days to come to study Revelation and have an open heart and mind as to what you want to say to us through it. God, thank you tonight that you alone are on your throne. You're the only true and living God. The other gods are all dead and false gods. And Lord, to you and you alone tonight, we ascribe majesty and glory and praise and honor. And we thank you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. We didn't get a chance tonight to have questions or comments. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to see me afterwards or email me this week. I'd be delighted to hear from you. God bless you. Have a good week. See you Sunday.